Thanks for pressing play. Our ability to communicate and collaborate is core to our humanity. And yet, we live at a time where many of us in the United States of America seem to be having a very tough time having real, powerful dialogues. Our guest today is an expert on conversation. She even wrote a best-selling book about it called We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. Talk about a title that I love. Her TED Talk, 10 Ways to Have Better Conversations, has been viewed 25 million times. And she's got a new book out called Speaking of Race, Why Everybody Needs to Talk About Racism and How to Do It. And frankly, her new book is already sparking what she wanted, which is conversation. Her name is Celeste Headley. And she is, in her own words, your average black Jewish American journalist, writer, and NPR broadcaster. (laughs) What you're about to hear is a deep conversation on why authentic conversations matter and how to have them. She shares the power of what she calls neurocoupling, her ideas on how you can be a more powerful conversationalist, why our brain rewards us when we have real dialogue. Celeste also shares how she developed her powerful, classically trained singing and speaking voice. When you hear her speak, if you're like me, I could listen to her read Wikipedia to me with that voice. She tells us why writing her new book was actually physically hard for her, because talking about race in America is hard. We tackle reparations for black people, the genesis of the scarcity mindset, how she thinks we can create a more just country, and pay special attention to Celeste's thoughts on why valuing time as money has actually been detrimental to society. This is Christopher Lockhead, Folly or Different. And uh, man, are we ever glad that you're here. My friends at App are the real relationship network. We all know that social media algorithms that manipulate what we see have been proven to be detrimental to us as individual and to all of us as a society. On App, there are no ads, no bots, no likes, no trolls, no followers, no algorithms, no influencers, no censorship, no photo filters, no feed fatigue, no misinformation, and no echo chambers. App. Visit halloapp.com or search H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P on your app store of choice and let's get real. And our newsletter, uh, Category Pirates, is on fire. And we have recently been taking some of our newsletters and converting them into mini ebooks and audiobooks on Amazon.com, including uh, recent ones on uh, why personal branding is the me disease, the power of a point of view, the category design scorecard, uh, no ocean strategy as opposed to blue ocean strategy. So go to Amazon.com, search for Category Pirates, and you will see our ever-expanding library of books and audiobooks uh, for your education, entertainment, and pleasure. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Celeste, it sure is a joy to see you. It's a joy to see you, too. Thank you so much. 
And not to be inappropriate or anything, but I want you to know, I kind of fell in love with you <laughs> because nice. I love how much you care about real conversation. Could you tell me about where that passion for conversation came from? I think I have a real, you know, when you think about the things that really bother you, as you get older, they sort of dwindle, you know, um, because there's just fewer things that seem worth it to get upset about. Um, but the one thing that really, really bothers me is things that can be fixed, like important problems that could make people's lives better but and are totally fixable. And so much is fixable through good communication. I mean, there's just very little that we couldn't, we can't talk through as human beings. And so um, I'm passionate about it because A, it's universal. Um, every single person on the planet needs to be able to converse with others and communicate with others well. And B, it's just the root of problem solving. I mean, this is what solves problems, period, <laughs> whatever they are. So uh, yeah, I'm pretty passionate about it. Hmm. And, you know, quite a while ago now, we had an author on um, named Buster Benson, who wrote a fascinating book called Why Are We Yelling? And, you know, I think about the, his book in, in connection to your book. And, and so why do you think we're at a place, particularly here in the United States, where um, the ability to have a conversation seems to have uh, dissipated? There's there's a bunch. There's so much feeding that right now, and it's not just the United States. Um, so much of our lives has changed and and pulled away from what is kind of um, healthy for us as human beings. You know, it's, it's interesting because what my my second book focused on, do nothing, was um, our obsession with work. But in over the course of the research for that book, I ended up doing a huge amount of very in-depth research into the Industrial Revolution and how things changed. And I think we can trace a lot of our problems in conversation back to that moment in history when a Scotch engineer uh, improved the steam engine enough to make it viable for factories, right? Because I, I mean, I don't know what your education was like, but I had an extremely good education and yet they never really impressed upon me how much changed in the industrial revolution. Like it was basically, it wasn't just a capitalist. It wasn't just about work life or factories. Our entire lifestyles changed and how we related to one another and where we lived was a huge part of that. Prior to the industrial revolution, most people lived in rural areas. Most people uh, interacted with maybe a hundred or 150 people, period, over the course of their lives. And then all of a sudden the industrial revolution came comes and everybody flips over till most people are living in urban areas. Most people are in encountering thousands of people over the course of a week or a month instead. And it just, it happened too quickly. We weren't able to adjust, evolve that fast. And so what's happened is we've sort of, not surprisingly and understandably, we've we've put up our defenses. We've gotten overwhelmed by all the yelling and the the disagreement. Um, and so we have kind of turtled down and and hunkered down so that we only want to talk to the people that we know agree with us, that we know like us, and so that it won't become a conflict. For me, it's quite understandable. It's not healthy, but it's understandable. 
You know, I find it interesting that, um, you know, when we started podcasting, I, I didn't think that I would end up being a champion for dialogue, for conversation, uh, and for trying to bring back a word that today we very rarely hear, which is conversationalist, right? I, I mean, of course, I don't have to tell you, you literally wrote the book, but there was a point in time where people had an ambition, had a goal to become uh, a good conversationalist. These are not things we hear today. Yeah, I agree with that. I, in one sense, I 100% agree with that. In another sense, I would say most people don't know what conversation is anymore because there are lots of people that believe they're good conversationalists. And what they really means is, is that they're good talkers and they're not the same thing at all. To be a great conversationalist, even in ages past, the, the time when you were talking about, you know, Oscar Wilde, I imagine was not a good conversationalist. Fantastic talker, um, but not good in conversation. Why? Because you have to be able to listen as well as you talk. And the smarter you are, the harder that challenge becomes. The wittier you are, the funnier you are, the harder that becomes. But also listening is just hard. It's hard for our species. And so... I agree that there was a time at which people wanted to be known as good conversationalists, but I also happen to know that somebody like Oscar Wilde thought he was a good conversationalist. And I, I very much, I very much doubt it. I, I, I think that some of the people that we think of as not being good in conversationalists conversation are much better than they get credit for. And those are the people who s speak less than they listen. Speak less than they listen. Uh, could you pop the hood on that one for me? Yeah, you know, we even have scientific proof to show that, in fact, the amount of time, the, the less you speak, the more you enjoy a conversation. <laughs> it, not just in my book, but all the time I compare conversation to a, a game of catch. Because a healthy game of catch is one in which you're both trying to have fun, right? Um, you're both invested in the other person enjoying it. A game of catch isn't really competitive. You're not keeping score, right? You're just, that means that you are invested in the other person catching the ball and returning it. So you're not pegging it down the field to, it, it, you're trying to make it so that they can catch it. That's number one. The other one is, is that in order to play catch, you ha literally cannot throw more times than you catch. It has to be an even balance. Um, or you're throwing the ball to yourself. So if we can get that sense of of both balance and investment in the other person's success in conversation, we actually will enjoy it better. I think sometimes we it feels so good to talk about ourselves that we lose sight of how enjoyable it is to hear someone else's story. We're talking about two different kinds of pleasure, right? We know that talking about yourself activates the same pleasure center in the brain as heroin and orgasm, right? This is research that originally started at, at Harvard University, and it activates your dopamine center, which is your addiction hormone. So it's addictive to talk about yourself. So I just want to make sure, Celeste, I understand exactly what you're saying. When we talk about ourselves, we stimulate the same part of the brain that gets stimulated when we have an orgasm. Is that what you just said? That is correct. Or a hit of heroin. Okay, please tell me a lot about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, interestingly enough, if you go back to that original Harvard study, you will find that not only 
did people choose to t- continue talking about themselves um, even when they were offered more money to stop doing that, to talk about anything else. But they continued to talk about themselves even though they were in an, an, an MRI machine, right? They were inside a machine where there's no way to know if there's somebody else in the room. They are possibly in a room by themselves <laughs> talking about themselves and that's still the choice that they make. I'm not making fun of them at all because they are us. That's It's pleasurable for all of us to talk about what we like, what we don't like, our pet peeves, how terrible our, our plane flight was. But we also know that actually having a conversation with someone else in which you are listening and engaging, having a mutual exchange of ideas, that activates your serotonin and your oxytocin. And that those are much longer lasting, more holistic pleasures that make you a better person. Dopamine, the effects that dopamine have on your body, dopamine's not a villain, but still the effects that it have on your has on your body are short-term and they're not great. They, they don't make you that great of a person. <laughs> Oxytocin and serotonin make you more compassionate. They make you feel um, empathetic. And one way to think of it is that a shot of dopamine, when you get a shot of dopamine, you mean you think that felt great and I want more. When you get a shot of uh, oxytocin, you think that felt great and I feel great. I'm good, right? Hmm. Oxytocin is your is your mommy's hug. <laughs> so this is the difference between talking about yourself versus actually having a conversation. And so we know for a fact that the uh, chemicals in our brain um, are different when we listen versus when we talk about ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And we know there's a long-term value to the listening the drugs in our brain, if we could call them that, um, <laughs> than there are to the drugs in our brain that go off when we talk about how awesome we are. Yeah. And let me take it one step further. I don't mean to make this all about um, neuroscience. But, I'll, I'll um, chase you anywhere you want to go. <laughs> We're having, but, I'll pitch the ball back to you anywhere you want. But uh let me talk a little bit about some some research into a, a phenomenon called neural coupling. And um, in this, the original study was they had one person uh, come in and tell a story about their lives, just a personal story, right? And they're all hooked up to monitors. In one case, the, the a young woman was talking about her very disastrous senior prom. Very relatable. Most of us had a senior prom, and for many of us, it was disastrous. Then they had a bunch of other people get hooked up to monitors and come in and listen to her story. And they found that when they became engaged in listening, right, when they began to focus on her, their brains synced up exactly with hers. The brain waves were an exact sync. I mean, I want you to really take this in. I mean, we're talking about electrical impulses in their brains. There is no reason why they should sync up. In fact, in some cases, the sync was so exact that the listener's brainwaves anticipated changes in the speaker's brainwaves by a fraction of a second. I mean, think about this for a second. This is like Star Trek material. This is mind meld. We don't entirely understand how it works or why it works, but we know that this is what happens when a pair of human ears take in the sound of a human voice and process it cognitively. It's like the closest thing to magic that you can imagine, right? Um, 
This is what we try to replace with email. It's just, it's not possible. We do this incredible biological magic when we use our voices and our ears. Um, and it, all it takes is for us to focus on the sound of another human being's voice and their story, the story that they're telling. It's fascinating that you say that because I have this experience of listening where when I'm listening in a powerful way, maybe say it that way, it's almost as though I'm sitting inside of your, your speaking, right? It's like, there, it, it sounds corny. It sounds like I've lived on the West Coast for way too long, I know. Um, but there is an element of exactly what you describe, which is, I don't know if we're part of a chain. I don't know what the, good, the, the appropriate analogy would be, but uh, it is like a dance, like that I can anticipate where you might be going. And my, my ear is sort of uh, wanting the next word because I'm, I'm, I'm just being, I'm, I'm present to, I'm paying attention to, I'm mindful of, however you want to describe it, exactly what you're saying. And what I'm not doing is thinking about, oh, well, I agree with that, or I disagree with that, or, oh, well, when she finally shuts up, I get to say my thing that I like to say when somebody says the kind of thing she just said, and all that other bullshit. When you stop doing that, whatever that's called, and you almost sort of disappear for yourself, and you're just your mindfulness is like sitting literally in the other person's voice. That's how I think about it. But is, is that how you mean it or how do you mean it? I think that listening is a, is a different experience for each person. I, believe me, this is not a cop-out. When I talk about uh, engaged listening, I mean, it, to a certain extent, exactly what you said, that you're actually taking in what they say that you are being present with what they're telling you, as opposed to being distracted by whatever it is that you want to say. Stephen Covey, um, we're always focusing, you know, listening not to understand, but to reply, um, which is how most people listen. Um, so yeah, when I talk about listening, I'm talking about actually taking it in. And again, I go back to that definition of conversation as a mutual exchange of ideas. You know, if you've walked away from the conversation and you've learned nothing, you haven't actually had a conversation. Yes. And so I want to go back to where you, I think you started on this thread, which is this idea of neurocoupling, which is, if I understand what you're saying, our brains are literally on the same wavelength when measured. Is that is that a way to think about it? Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder for years, Celeste, we've also seen research on human behavior where you observe people in a conversation and it is not unusual for them to mimic some behavior physically. Maybe they stand in the same way or I, I, I you know, cross my arms and maybe you cross your arms or there's a, there's a physical a largely unconscious dance that happens. And what we're told by experts or certainly what I've read, I want to check this out with you is that there's a physical mimicry that can take place too. And so I'm, I'm curious about this neurocoupling and how it might relate to some of this physical mimicry that we see when human beings seem to be uh, uh, as, as, as we say today, vibing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's absolutely correct. In fact, that, Observing those changes is what led the conversation advice industry astray. In other words, 
when I first began to study conversation, I did what everybody else did was I went to the experts. I'm a good NPR journalist. When I have a question, I, I hit the books, right? Um, and I read all the same advice that most of us have read, which is that in order to have a good conversation and listen to other people, you nod your head, you maintain eye contact, you say, uh-huh, a lot, you summarize what you just heard, et cetera, et cetera. You mimic their body movements. But what ended up ended up happening was researchers observed people in conversation, and then they would ask them about uh, how much they retained of what they heard, how good the conversation was. And for those conversations that were what were rated as good, they observed that people would nod their heads a lot and say, uh-huh, and maintain eye contact and, and mimic body movements. And they were like, okay, if you do all these things, you'll have a good conversation, right? Which is crap. <laughs> That's just not how it works. Because what ends up happening is you're sitting there focused on nodding your head and copying body movements and all those things. And you're not focused on what actually creates a good conversation, which is the listening itself. Those things, the body movement mimicry that you're talking about happens naturally without us even thinking about it. There's even this great study done by a bunch of social psychologists and it's called the liking gap. And they studied this for a for a year, they studied people in conversation with people they just met, people they knew fairly well, people who lived together for a year. And what they found out was that we're all pretty good at conversation. We know how to do this. We don't have to try to do it too hard. All we have to do is get out of our own way, right? So this sort of vibing that you're talking about, that happens when we get so invested in the conversation that we stop being self-conscious. We stop worrying about how we sound, whether we're funny, why are they making that face? Do they hate me? Did I say something dumb? How does my hair look? When we stop worrying about that stuff because we're interested in what we're hearing, we know how to do this. And you will naturally mimic somebody else's body movements. You will naturally vibe along with them. And so did you just give me the secret there, Celeste? I just uh, stop paying attention to myself and start paying attention to you and just uh, allow myself to uh, to get into the flow so that we can vibe. That That's kind of the secret to life. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> Fair that enough. is, I have, you know, as I age, one of the things that I have, am I allowed to swear? You could swear your fucking ass off. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I have learned as I age is that my happiness increases in inverse ratio to the amount of fucks I give. And as I've stopped caring what other people think, I'm just a happier person. Um, and this is as true in conversation as it is in everything else. Yes, it is liberating. I remember sort of having this aha. There was this person in my life who'd been in my life for some meaningful period of time, years. And I knew that while we were friends and colleagues, that there was a big part of who I am that this person didn't approve of, that like I, I just wasn't okay with this person. And I wanted to be okay with this person. And so I tried to do things to make myself okay. That is to say, manage his impression of me. Well, of course our relationship ended up blowing up because if you're in a relationship with somebody who doesn't kind of, you know, accept you for who you are sooner or later, the thing's not going to work. Anyway, the learning of course is we could try all the fuck we want to, to, to change the people's perception of us and how they, but we have no control over it. And so if you have no control over it, kind of let the chips fall where they may. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of the same thing in uh, conversation. It's why I try to get people to focus on like what what's interesting about the person you're talking to. Because I get that most people think there are a lot of people they don't want to talk to who, who aren't interesting at all. But you know, this is one of the things you learn after decades of interviewing every possible kind of person on the planet is that even the ones you don't like are interesting, right? I mean, <laughs> they that, that may not come out immediately what it is that's really cool about this person, but believe me, it's interesting. You you may not even approve. Maybe Maybe your friend didn't even... <laughs> approve of what it was that was the most interesting about you, but it's still damn interesting. And if you can find what that interesting thing is about that person, you will have a good conversation. Like it's that simple. Find out what it is that is surprising about them. And believe me, you will have a good conversation. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. Now there's lots, there's a ton I want to talk to you about, of course. I mean, you've had in this incredible career, but I, I want to talk about this Next, if I could, because it's just on my mind uh, with you, which is your voice. Tell me about your voice. Um, what about it? I'm a trained vocalist. I mean, I have my bachelor's and master's degree in vocal performance. I believe strongly in the power of the voice to move people. I think there's probably not much that is more powerful than a human voice. What... what um, what about my voice? One of the first things I notice about you is your voice. And I think a lot of people who experience your work more than likely, you tell me, encounter you for the first time via your voice. Of course, you've written a lot of books, so sometimes they encounter you through the written word. And of course, sometimes they see you. But I would imagine a meaningful percentage of the people who experience what you do experience it via your voice. Is that the case, Celeste? Yeah, I think that's true. You know, it's funny when you are on radio all the time, and I think this is especially true of NPR because uh, with public radio, um, we don't have inter commercials interrupting us all the time, right? It is incredibly rare for a commercial radio station to have even a five minute interview, let alone a nine or 10 minute one, right? Um, but I will sometimes be nonstop talking for 20 minutes at a time. And it's very intimate. And not only that, but people have my voice in their ears while they're making breakfast in the morning and getting their kids ready for school or taking a shower or in their car alone together, just the two of us. And it, it creates an intimacy that is both wonderful and for me a little bit awkward because I'll meet people who feel like we are best friends and they're not wrong. They do know me right? It's just that I, I don't know them. <laughs> so it, it sometimes is a, is makes not a bad, but a just awkward interaction. I mean, I, I just think that the voice is such a, it's intimate. I'm, I'm not really sure how else to explain it. And for me, my voice has all, I've always been good at um, ex being expressing things through my voice. That's something I never had to train. You know, I didn't start as an opera major. I was a, cl an, a classical theater major. Um, and 
when I got to, through a series, through a concatenation of circumstances, I ended up starting at Northern Arizona University mid-semester because I was on my way to Oberlin Conservatory. They don't start you mid-year. So I had to go to NAU temporarily. And they did not have any theater scholarships available. So they said, we've got one music scholarship available, but it's opera, meaning you don't cram for us an audition in opera, right? <laughs> if I if I told I'm you, I'm sure if I work on this for a half an hour before the test, I can get this. <laughs> right. If I were to tell you, you've got uh, 72 hours to audition for an opera scholarship, singing an aria and two art songs, right? So how hard, uh, how hard can it be? I know how a couple of Ramones tunes on the guitar. <laughs> right. So anyhow, I did it. <laughs> I got this scholarship and that was all she wrote. I became an opera major uh, and went to the University of Michigan and got my degree there, which is a phenomenal music school. Um, but, and believe me, the technical part of classical singing is extremely difficult. And to get a, a degree in vocal performance, you have to take an insane, just a, the number of classes you have to take, but you're not just studying the regular foreign languages, French, German, Italian, and usually some other like Spanish or perhaps Russian. But you're also taking diction courses so that you're pronouncing them exactly right. You're not just taking the science courses because you need to learn pedagogy and how the respiratory system works and how the vocal cords work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you're also taking all acoustics and you're taking music history and analyzing a score, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the technical part of it absolutely is difficult, but the expression was never my problem, <laughs> ever. That <laughs> always came naturally to me. Yeah. And so I, I think there's something fascinating about you beyond your work and your career, which is your voice, because I think a lot of people don't think about their voice. I agree with that. Even a lot of broadcasters. <laughs> and And we don't think about how to use our voice and my 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 relationship with my voice has transformed over the last four so years since, since starting the podcast i'm not a professional like you are and and so when i first started to really hear you i was like wow this this gal is paying attention to and has in a set of skills around her ability to use her voice that i don't have and that i don't think most people have and then i started to think about how powerful speaking is. And of course the words we speak mean a lot, um, but also the way we speak them means a lot. And so I guess my question goes to this. When I experience your voice, on one hand, I don't feel like you're performing or putting on a show per se, like you would maybe if you were singing. However, I do feel like you are very purposely using your voice in a way that I think uh, my interpretation is most people don't. And so, Celeste, I'm curious to your reaction to that sort of stream of consciousness about your voice. Yeah, I mean, a couple things come to mind. The first is I actually wrote a, a book, which I self-published to keep the price down, for broadcasters called Herd Mentality, H-E-A-R-D. And I include a chapter in there on the care of the voice. And you would be stunned how many people who work in broadcasting said, wow, this is the first time I've ever... Um, had somebody talk to me about how to take care of my voice. 
<laughs> because I, I put some very practical things in here. Here's how to care for your voice. Here's what you do before you go on the air. Here's what to do when you have a cold. Here's how you take care of your voice. People making their living through their voices don't even think about that the fact that coffee is is a is drying. <laughs> don't drink coffee before you go on the air. It dries out your vocal cords, right? So there's that. But in terms, the other thing that that occurs to what me is that- What about whiskey? Is whiskey okay? It, it is not. Aw, <laughs> oh, Celeste. After you get off the air. <laughs> and the same amount of water as whiskey for multiple reasons. Um, the other thing is that <laughs> I, I don't have to think anymore about how to express what I- want to the feelings anymore. And the reason is because I've had decades of training the same way Simone Biles doesn't have to think about how to how to do a somersault, <laughs> right? Or a front flip or a back flip. That is in her body. It's in her muscle memory. And it is the same thing for me that if I um, feel something in my body, let's say I'm feeling empathy for another person or I'm feeling grief, all I have to do now is feel that grief and my body knows how to express that through the voice. That's taken years of technical training um, to where you have such control over those muscles in your neck and in your uh, voice box that it your body does what it's asked to do. Um, it can be you know, it's interesting because people say to me all the time, oh, I'd love to live next door to an opera singer. I would love to hear that singing. And I would think, no, you don't. <laughs> we don't start Quando Menvo and just sing it start to end. When I'm practicing, I'm going to sing the same phrase over and over and over again until it's in my muscles. Uh, I'm going to be like, ah, cherie, ah, cherie, ah, cherie, ah, cherie, over and over and over and over until you want to shoot yourself in the noggin. Like, that's not fun, but that's what it takes to get those things into your muscle memory. Um, and that's what decades of training has done for me so that now if I am speaking to a mother who's lost her son to violence on the air, all I have to do is feel that. And it will be translated into into a vocal sound. I don't have to think it through anymore, but I did earlier in my career. Yes, and I know you teach on interviewing and and many of these skills. If you were to give me a quick crash course right now and say, "Hey, um, there's two or three things that you could do to have a meaningful breakthrough in the way you use your voice to communicate with people," what would you point me towards? Um, I would point you towards exercises to do every day, just like, you know, someone's going to give you, you know, I want to learn how to be more flexible. They're going to give you the sun, teach you the sun salutation to do every morning. Right. I would give you exercises to do every morning. I would teach you exercises to do if you have phlegm on your vocal cords, how to shake the phlegm off naturally, right? For example, if you are gunky and mucusy, you're gonna drink a ton of water. You are not gonna drink anything that's acidic, like that, say for example, anything with lemon or orange juice or pineapple juice for that matter. And you're gonna go uh, with your vocal cords because that's gonna, what you see inside the vocal cords is they're very gently shaking it off. 
So in terms of the most powerful things you can do, it's that everyday discipline. One of the biggest mistakes that people make with their voice is they don't have range. So if I need to get quiet, if I need to talk about something that is very sensitive, I will lower my voice to this level. But what people may not realize is that there's still presence in this voice. It's still audible because I'm not whispering. Whispering sounds like this. And that's because I've removed the presence of my voice. It's damaging to your voice to whisper like that. <laughs> but it also is not truly audible. I need to keep the presence of my voice, whether I'm speaking low or I'm speaking quite loud. The presence, the core of that sound needs to remain, which means my my breathing needs to be stable. I need to have that core of breathing. But I also need to understand how to keep the range, make the range um, moot. In other words, whether I'm speaking at a high tone or whether I'm speaking at a low tone, it shouldn't matter. The core of the sound remains the same. And that's when people talk about giving someone range, it is as important for someone who uses their voice to speak, perhaps more important than it is for someone who uses their voice to sing. Mm, fascinating. And I think, this is just my opinion, your work in this area and the advice you just gave me, which I deeply appreciate, I think it's important for everybody because we now live in this new work from anywhere reality, which means we're using our voices, whether, whether we're um, an NPR journalist like you, or, um, you know, if we're a, if we're a knowledge worker, we're probably on zoom a lot and we're probably going to be on zoom a lot. And so it's different. We're all sort of on the internet radio all the time, I guess is my point. And so do you share my opinion that as a result, the way we use our voice is more important today in a digital world or a digital first world than, than ever before? Because to your point, we are sitting in people's ears. I actually don't agree that it's more important. I think it was always crucial. <clears throat> always. I always think there was nothing more important. And I say that because um, communication between our species is the reason why we're the only human species left. That's the reason why we're the last one standing. You know, they, they've done evolutionary biologists and psychologists for a very long time. We're trying to figure out why Homo sapiens sort of won the evolutionary race among humans. Um, I don't think we're better than dolphins. <laughs> um, and because, you know, we make fun of Neanderthal all the time, but Neanderthals were impressive they were strong and nimble and smart. They had bigger brains than we did. They practiced a crude form of dentistry. I mean, there's no logical reason why Homo sapiens, who are more fragile, less resilient, should have beat out Neanderthal. And yet we did. And the reason was because of our communication skills. It was because if you're messing with one Homo sapiens, you are probably messing with more. No tiger can come to our village and drag one of us out night after night after night. Eventually, all of us will get together and we have these advanced communication skills, these advanced collaboration skills, and we will take the tiger down. This tiger that would decimate one of us cannot decimate all of us. Why? Because we are so good at teamwork. There has never been 
a time in our history when our communication skills and our expressive skills were ever not life and death crucial. Thank you for that. Now, maybe let's talk about, let's talk about race. I can't imagine what it might have been like to be a journalist um, over the last handful of years. And I'm fascinated by both why you wanted to say something and what you wanted to say as it relates to race. And it's, it sounds like you're trying to have a, a conversation with us about this. And so I'm curious, why now? And, and um, how has the last couple of years really influenced what you want to say about race? So I am a, a black Jew, just a few generations removed like from Like the us. hundreds of millions of other black Jews. Yes. Keep going. <laughs> you know, just a not- You all and that Sammy f- Davis, right? <laughs> right. Except he was not born a Jew. He converted. I'm not all that far removed from a plantation in, in rural Georgia. And uh, it, when the all the protests began and George Floyd was murdered, my editor at- uh, Harper Collins sent me a message and said, Oh my God, you're exactly the voice we want to hear on this. Maybe you should write a book about talking about race. And I said, no, <laughs> absolutely not, not touching it. I have no interest. <laughs> um, because it's, if you write something about race, 50% of people are, are going to hate you without reading it. Um, Race is such a personal experience that you're never going to be 100% right. My experience with race is so very different. I mean, look how light-skinned I am. It's so very different than every other person's experience with race. So I didn't want to touch it. But as I saw the months unfold, and I thought about my grandparents um, and how we're really... I'm not saying we haven't made progress, we have, but how we're really not substantially further along in combating racism than they were when they got married and they had to get married in Tijuana because um, interracial marriage was illegal at the time. That I thought, you know, maybe it. I, sh- I don't want to talk about the history of race. I don't want to talk about the context of race, but maybe I can teach people how to talk about it. Because that's something I can do. Uh, and so my next book that comes out in November is called Speaking of Race, uh, Why Everybody Needs to Talk About Racism and How to Do It. And I have to tell you, uh, writing that book wrecked me. Um, it was, I was devastated after, I've never written anything so hard in my life. It was emotionally and frankly, physically exhausting. Um it's done. <laughs> it's edited. <laughs> it's ready to go. Thank God. Uh, but it, it was hard. It was really, really hard. And so maybe let me ask what is the obvious question? Why? It's hard to articulate, even for me, who is a professional articulator. Um, we're talking about issues that are so, you know, there's some stories that I tell in this book that I've never told anybody else in my life. And it was interesting to me that when my agent and my editor first read the book, they said they started crying and I was shocked. I was like, crying at what? What part of the book made you cry? And it was the personal stories that I was telling. And for me, they're such, they seem so prosaic. They're just, this is what happens to people, any person of color, even somebody's light skinned as I am. 
that it didn't seem to me all that emotional. And yet to other people who have not had to experience race or think about race every single day for whom their race has not measurably hurt them, hasn't cost them things, hasn't cost their family things and lives. Um, It is, I think, traumatic to think about race and think about the way it has hurt someone you care about. I, you know, I think that's why so many people, honestly, so many white progressives were traumatized by the election of Donald Trump. Because um, no black person in America was surprised when he was elected. Disappointed, yeah. But frankly, America has been disappointing people of color their whole lives. It was no surprise to find out that America didn't live up to its ideals. For white progressives, and I'm not saying this in any kind of snarky or diminishing way at all, I watched people I care about become absolutely traumatized by the shock. Um, I think that's been really hard for people. And I say all this just to explain how difficult it can be to have an honest conversation about race, to face truths about race. And for me in writing this book, not only did I, was I, I was really, in order to write this book in an honest way, I had to share these things that I never wanted to talk about. That was one. I can't ask other people to have an honest conversation about race and not disclose myself. But the other thing is that you have to be so careful. A, you're you're spending every single day just immersed in racism and bias and how harmful it has been, not just for people of color, but frankly, for white people too. Um, and you spend months and months and months immersed in this um, and trying to speak so carefully, trying to speak in a way that you don't shut anybody down. And it's, oh God, even th- talking about it now is just making me feel exhausted. Like it's so much, it's so much. At some point, Celeste, do you have to say, I, 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 I got to stop super editing myself and just say what I want to say and let the chips fall where they may? Or, you know, I've also heard lots of professors and, and, and many other folks in sort of similar fields to yours who express a real fear of quote unquote cancel culture, that their career could be over in moments. I'm not afraid of cancel culture. Um, you know, it's it's just the same as I'm not afraid as a reporter to just report what I know to be true. Um, I, that's something I had to grapple with a very long time ago when what I was reporting on would become the record. You know, my my journalism has been part of court proceedings. My journalism has been the, has been included in United Nations reports. So at, at very early on, you have to grapple with the idea that what you're saying becomes an official record, right? Um, and so therefore you you stop worrying about whether you're objective because nobody is and you start worrying about whether you are accurate and you are fair. Um and that's sort of the way I I approach my book writing too is I want to be accurate or not and be fair and that's the best I can do. I did not ever in the writing of this book say let the chips fall where they may because there was no point in me writing this book if it was not going to at least in some small way, encourage people, convince people to have the conversation. And so I had to be very careful knowing that I was going to have readers of all colors, of all experiences, 
to never make it feel like I was not talking to them. I had to make sure my language is as as inclusive as possible. But I also had to prove that you can talk about this without getting into an argument. (laughs) I'm not talking about the the 50% of the people who are going to hate it because talking about race, they equate with racism. Okay. I'm talking about um, what Dolly Chug uh, calls the, the movable middle. Right. So this is a, a concept that I think originally or, uh, originated in, in research in the 1990s of the fact that in any group of people, you can split them up into 60 percent and then the 20 percent on either end. Right. So Dolly Chug, who wrote The Person You Mean to Be, um, she used this to apply to diversity efforts and inclusive ex- efforts in that you're going to have 20 percent who are all in absolutely convinced there's a problem, ready to do whatever it takes. You're going to have 20% on the other end who can't be convinced. Nothing you say will move them, period. And we've seen that in politics. But in the middle, there's like 60% who are willing to listen. Again, called the movable middle. For them, it's possible that a conversation could change their mind one way or the other. And so my book is aimed at, at them. I'm not worried about that 20% who won't be convinced. That's, I, yes. you know, it's not that I don't care about them. It's just that I won't reach them. I'm talking to the people in the middle who could go either way. Yes. And that's a, that's a tough conversation, but it is not impossible. So maybe let's go there for a second. I think many of us, if not the vast majority of us, uh, over the last uh, handful of months have ended up having conversations about race and racism and uh, racial injustice in America in a way that um, many of us had not had before uh, George Floyd's murder. And there's lots of threads that have come up in my life, but there's one in particular I'd like to maybe um, try with you. And it was one, I, it took me a while to understand what they were saying. And I think if I understand this point of view, right, it goes something like this. Hey, Lockhead, you asshole. When you start to talk about injustice and you talk about, you know, uh, I've spent a lot of time writing and talking about economic injustice, entrepreneurial injustice, why we need to support black banks, things along these lines, why we need to support black and brown entrepreneurs, Uh, I've been involved with the starting of a foundation to help with this stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, what I hear from some white people is, hey, Lockhead, you're the fucking racist. The fact that you think you high and mighty white guy needs to like hand the, the black and brown people a handout or a hand up or whatever it is you think you're trying to fucking do, you're the racist by putting them down, saying the only way they can be successful is if you help in some way. And so um, you're the real racist by doing what you're doing. I'm curious what you think about that point of view, Celeste. I can't speak to um, the way you're messaging. I can't. Okay, so I'll tell you that one of my very favorite speakers on race is a white guy, Tim Wise. And the reason he's my favorite 
is A, he's an incredible communicator. He sounds like a Southern preacher. He's from Tennessee. But also, as far as I'm concerned, the people who should be talking about all of this are white dudes. Like, first of all, people of color are sick of doing this work. We're sick of it. Thank you. <laughs> but also, research shows that if I, if I complain about uh, a lack of inclusive inclusivity or bias or discrimination in the workplace, I have a double whammy against me. Number one, I'm a person of color. And number two, I'm a woman. And research shows I'm not likely to be believed or taken seriously. Not only am I not likely to be believed, heard, taken seriously, statistically speaking, but also I am much more likely to be punished for speaking up in my next performance review, in the next time I ask for a raise or promotion. The people who are the most convincing, the most likely to actually to bring about change, and I'm talking about in the workplaces, which is where these studies were conducted, are uh, white dudes, white people of influence. They have the most power to bring about change. So should you be talking about this? Absolutely. Should you be talking about it like a white savior? Of course not. Should you be talking about uh, what people of color think or feel? Of course you should not. Should you be talking about the perspective on race coming from a white male? Absolutely. And this is the great thing that about Tim Wise is he talks to white people from a white perspective. He's talking about race as a white person. He never speaks for any other community. He never speaks for any other person. He speaks for himself and his own community, and he's speaking to his own community. And that kind of message from a white person is not only 100% welcome, but it's the only thing in the end that's going to work. Thank you for that. That's... um. That's what I happen to believe. And actually, it was a listener that helped me understand this. Um, maybe about a year or so into podcasting, Celeste, I was on a speaking tour. And, um, and I was signing books and doing all that stuff. Anyway, this guy came to a, a speaking gig I was doing in New York. And he was there a little early and wanted me to autograph his book and, and, and so forth, which, as you know, is something that when you pour your life into books and people take the time to read them and enjoy them and ask you to doodle your name in them as a writer, that's a, a great gift they give us. Anyway, so I start having a conversation with this guy and he says to me, he says, I know what you're doing with your podcast. And I said, oh, really? Well, then maybe you can explain it to me. <laughs> and he said, and he was a white guy about my age, maybe a little younger. And he said, Nobody can do it on their own. And systemic change isn't going to happen until uh, rich, white, influential white guys make a change. And he said, so I want to thank you for doing that. Um, because to your point, uh, if I want to have a conversation about the problem with not enough black banks in the United States of America, well, I invite Terry Williams, the president of the largest black bank in America, One United, to come on the podcast and talk about it. So I might have an opinion about it, which I do, but I really want to know what she says about it um, and, and so on. And so I, I just thank you for that. You know, I, I think that um, it's a weird thing to be criticized for promoting a real meritocracy, a real even playing field, a real uh, equal access to opportunity. And it is incredible when you're criticized for, in the case of uh, white banks not supporting black people, the data is very, very clear. And to have uh, white people call me out as being racist 
for promoting the fact that uh, white banks, for the most part, not all of them, of course, but certainly ones like Wells Fargo and others have been completely fucking evil to black people and enough's enough. I mean, for me, it's I, I, I'm a 100 percent supporter of reparations. I don't see efforts like that as uh handouts. They're not handouts. They're reparations. If your grandfather came to my house and stole $10,000 from my family, and then you come along later and say, I know my grandfather stole 10,000 bucks from you. I'm really sorry for it. I'm paying it back. You're not giving me a handout. You're paying back a debt. And it is the same thing when we come to the issues like this. There is a huge fucking outstanding debt that America owes to African Americans. And we can't move forward until the debt's paid. If you came to me and said, I'm so sorry, my grandfather stole 10,000 bucks for you. Let's all just shake hands and move forward. How the hell am I supposed to move forward? (laughs) I mean, you, you have to make amends. Right. And, and that's what so many white people are just will not understand. There was a debt owing. There was property stolen. There was uh, wealth stolen. And it needs to be paid back. Like, it's that simple. Then we can talk about fresh starts. You don't kill somebody's family member and then come back 50 years later and say, let's all be friends. Let's forget it. I've moved past it. How about you move past it? Nope. That's not how that works. And this is what so many white people fail to see at this point. It doesn't matter how long ago it it was because the damage is still being felt. This damage is actually still occurring. And so the debt has to be paid. It's it's really that simple. Hmm. And so just to be precise, when you say reparations, what exactly do you mean, Celeste? I honestly, I can't tell you exactly what I mean. We haven't even, you know, John Conyers, the... Uh, the late congressman from Michigan had a proposal in place to at least study how we could do reparations. What would that look like? Would that would that look like creating something on the level of the GI Bill? Would it look like creating uh, scholarship programs? Many of the things that benefited the white citizens of the United States all through the 20th century. Could we then create those kind of programs that were specifically for black people and the descendants of black people? I have no idea, but they that bill couldn't even get past the Congress. They wouldn't even investigate it or study how we might do it because the idea of it any way paying back the debt that the nation owes to black Americans is just enrages some people, which I don't understand because look, I am not only the descendant of slave slaves, I'm the descendant of slave owners as well. Like I can, I get it. I understand it, but it's stolen property. (laughs) Like you you have to give back the property. You know, I just watched recently the, the, the um, John Oliver episode on housing um, which is fantastic, and I encourage everybody to watch it. But he's talking about this piece of property in the in California, which some black owners had, and to this at, at this point would be worth millions of dollars. And the KKK tried to shove these black property owners out. When they were not successful, they simply the the city or the county seized it and just took it. How? How do you shake hands on that and say, let's move on? You give them back their land. Their descendants are still alive. Like, this is such an easy thing for me. 
and I, I, it's, is it complicated? Of course it is because one size doesn't fit all, but we should at least begin the conversation about how to make this work, how we can make this feasible, at least start it. So let's have a conversation about this. I think when some people, white people hear what you just said, they go to the, I didn't do this. You know, if my, if my grandfather had killed your great aunt, I could feel bad about that, but I, I didn't kill your great aunt, right? So I think, I think that's why should um, I have to pay for something that my ancestor did when I didn't do any of that? I think that's where they start. And so I'm curious in that sense, let me nudge on you on purpose. Why am I guilty of something an ancestor of mine did? And by the way, my ancestors are from Scotland. I was born in Canada. So I'm an immigrant to this country, just for the record. But I'm, I'm curious, walk me through why uh, white people today should, should pay for the sins of their grandparents and great-grandparents, et cetera. Well, uh, let's put it back, in, as opposed to murder, um, let's put it back into the, the, the case of your grandfather stealing 10,000 bucks from mine. Let's say that your grandfather then put that into an investment account and it's now worth so much money after 85 years or so that you're basically have a nice little income coming off of that. And you're living off of my money <laughs> that your grandfather stole and put into an investment account. There's number one is that is literally what's happened. The other thing is that this is not all that long ago. The the systemic racist policies that benefit white people and and disbenefit, punish people of color, especially black Americans, are still in place. Keep in mind that the, the woman who accused young Emmett Till of making advances at her and and caused his murder and then later recanted and said, admitted that she'd lied, is still alive and has never faced repercussions at all for lying about a child. Many of the policies that we're talking about right now in terms of uh, housing policies that benefit white people, um, healthcare policies that benefit white people, education policies that benefit white people, lending. You're talking about Wells Fargo. When you talk about Wells Fargo being evil to black people, that's now. <laughs> that's not no, 50 years ago. No, I know. It has ago. happening yeah. right now as we sit here and talk. At this moment. And those fuckers, not one of them, not one fucking executive from Wells Fargo, to the best of my knowledge, has ever gone to jail for what are criminal racist practices that are embedded in the way they do fucking business. This, there, people keep trying to think that when the Civil War ended, racism was solved. No, those things are happening now. I'm not blaming any white person for the Civil War. I'm blaming white people for continuing to support and defend the policies that keep the Civil War going in terms of the damage it does to Black American communities and Black American civilians. I know this is hard. I know it's painful. I get it. And this is one of the reasons why I've written this book. It's like no, understanding that it's painful, understanding that all of us have been through trauma, all of us have struggled. Life is not easy for anybody, right? With the Buddhist principle that life is pain, life is suffering, right? It is for everybody. But at the same time, that doesn't mean it's not, this deck isn't stacked against others 
Just because I have had a lot of privileges in my life doesn't mean I've also haven't struggled. And it's the same for everyone. And that should make us empathetic towards others. That should make us go, wow, it's been really hard for me. I can't even imagine how much harder it would be if I were Black. How do I fix this so that I am not benefiting from these racist policies right now? Forget the Civil War for right now. (laughs) Forget it. Let's talk about the racist bullshit that's happening right now that is preventing Black Americans from getting a a fair, square chance. Yes, this is where I go to. So look, I I actually don't have a position or opinion that I land on on reparations. I don't. I I don't. I think one of the things you learn as you get a little bit older is hopefully we get wise enough to know what things that we can have a real grounded opinion about and what things that we may have thoughts about, but we, we can't, we don't. So in other words, I'm not educated enough on everything there is to know about reparations to have an opinion as to whether or not in this case, the federal government and or state government should do something specific around reparations and what that would mean. I don't have an opinion about that. I would like to hear what other educated people who study the issue have to say. What I do have an opinion about is sort of where you're at now, Celeste, which is um, um, it's not an even playing field today. We know that. And if you don't get that, you're not paying the fuck attention. Um, And so we have to start with leveling the playing field, point A, getting rid of the systemic problems. Point B, I go a step further. So I'm not sure I go to reparations, but I certainly go one step further, which is, oh, and by the way, I'm going to help put the thumb on the scale. Because black and brown people have been fucked over in the United States for a very long time. And so putting the thumb on the scale to try to provide an advantage for some period of time as we move to a more perfect union, as we move to a real meritocracy, as we move to a, a system where there is truly equal access to opportunity. I don't give a shit about putting my thumb on the scale. I'm going to put my thumb on the scale because I think it's the right thing to do. It's just, that's just my personal opinion. But I'm curious as to your reaction to all that. Yeah. The reason why I brought up reparations to begin with is that putting your thumb on the scale can be seen as a form of reparations. You're tipping the balance in order to make up the lost ground. And that's a form of reparations. I mean, if people don't, you know, and this brings us back to why you have me on your podcast to begin with is because right now we're in a place where we can't even have a conversation. And, and that's what I want to do is teach, tell people, A, you can, you're not going to convince them. You will not change their mind. So let go of that. They won't change your mind, but it also, it doesn't have to be an argument. You can simply have the conversation. You can gain food for thought. I mean, think about that phrase for just a second, food for thought. We're talking about thoughts that are are interesting enough and compelling enough that your brain chews on them, right? It's a meal that lasts, (laughs) where you can go back to those leftovers in your fridge again and again and again and return to that meal. It's food for thought. But it's also fuel. Food is fuel as well. And let's hope that you have these conversations that are nourishing enough that it becomes fuel to compel action. That's the kind of conversation I want to foster. I want to make it so we can at least talk about this. And right now, we can't. 
here's sort of um, a thread on this one, which is, I think part of what's going on here is a scarcity mindset. That is to say, there's only so much of anything in the world. And if you have something, it means I don't have something. And so your success comes at a cost to me. And therefore, I want to make sure that the deck is stacked for me and so that I have a disproportionate amount of scarce resources and you don't take things from me. Now, maybe this is overly simplistic. You'll tell me, Celeste. But to me, a lot of this goes to a scarcity mindset fighting over resources. And the aha for me is, um, hey, wait a minute. And, and I'm a capitalist. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm the furthest thing from a socialist you're ever going to fucking meet, or certainly a communist. And I would say to you, the aha here is, when we all do well, we all do well. And so when you come from an abundance mindset that says, hey, wait a minute, you said it earlier. Why are, why are we here? Our ability to communicate and collaborate. We can fight over uh, existing bananas, or we can work together and plant some more banana trees, Right. And it produces a very different outcome individually and collectively. And so the thing for me I go to on this is there's A, the scarcity mindset, and then there's B, the realization that, hey, wait a minute, if we all do well, we all do well. And yet these things seem to be hard for people to understand. I'm curious as to your, your reaction. So this is one of the questions that that uh, sort of anchored my second book, Do Nothing. And it came directly out of my research into conversation uh, was this con this this discussion of our relationship to work, um, because work gets in the way of our relationships often and frankly, gets in the way of uh, communication. It's this competitive mindset that we have. Um, and of course, there, you know, there's the concept that a rising tide will lift all boats. The problem is that in order to maintain control over labor forces, whether you're pro-capitalist or anti-capitalist, at this point, it doesn't matter, I'm speaking to all of you. In order to maintain control over labor forces, and this isn't my opinion, this is documented, managerial forces, executive forces, and also political forces realized that they had to keep the labor force in a scarcity mindset. That was the easiest way to maintain control was to, that's, that's how they could um, have them constantly working extra hours unpaid. That's how they could be competitive with their colleagues rather than collegial, uh, was by maintaining this idea that there was only so much in the pot, that it was a zero sum game. But so what you see over the course of decades is that as productivity increased, um, the the profits gained by that productivity siphoned up to the very, very top. Why? Because if they shared that that those profits as they had, you know, if you looked at the the percentage of of between the percentage ratios between the CEO pay in 1920 versus today. I mean, it's, it's insane, right? Um, it's ridiculous, but that's because profits increased so much. If we went back to like 1910 and had the same proportions of wage wages across the, an entire workspace, um, workers would be doing very, very well, very well at this point, but then they wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to um, coerce them to work long hours. You wouldn't be able to say, you wouldn't make, you wouldn't be able to put fear into their hearts of losing their jobs. Why? Because they'd have a cushion. 
that have money saved up. They wouldn't have to constantly be in fear of losing their health care, for, for example. Um, one of the reasons that health care is coming through the employer is because you have to create this scarcity mindset. I mean, think about what you lose when you go part time. Right. You don't just lose half pay. <laughs> you lose everything, everything. You lose your sick pay. You lose your retirement. You use your health care. And the reason for that is because we don't, the, the, the managers don't want people working part-time. They want to get all of their hours. Why? Not to bring this back to the Industrial Revolution, but here we are again, because when the Industrial Revolution dawned, time became money. That was not true until the Industrial Revolution. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, and for the vast majority of human history, time was not money. It was what you produced that was money. It didn't matter how long it took you to make a wagon wheel. They paid for your expertise at making a wagon wheel. You go to some of the the buildings that were constructed before, say, 1850, and they're fabulous, right? Why? Because they didn't care how long it took you to sculpt that gargoyle. They paid you for the gargoyle. When factories came along, it didn't matter uh, how good you were at sculpting gargoyles. It mattered how fast you could get one done and pass it along to the next person on the on the line. So time became money, which, and then you immediately saw managers and factory owners literally stealing money. In fact, we have stories of people who would, uh, managers who would change the time on the clock to earlier so that their workers wouldn't realize it was time to come home. They would think they still had a couple hours left. They were quite literally stealing time. So I think what you're talking about in the scarcity mindset is absolutely on the nose. But I will also say that that has been quite deliberate, deliberately created. Yes. One of the things that we write about and talk about a lot in, in the area of category design and creating new categories and new innovations and so forth is um, is sort of what is valued is 100% perception. And I'm always amazed, Celeste, at how much people how that hurts their brain. They think that a diamond, by way of example, has intrinsic value. When in point <laughs> of fact, it has zero intrinsic value and nothing has any intrinsic value. We get, we get taught to value things, including human life itself. And so th- there's a long way of saying, I agree with you. I think it's crazy that people charge for their time. Whenever I hear consultants or accountants or any of these kinds, I'm like, charge for your time. Are you insane? I don't care whether it takes you two minutes or 10 hours. I care about the outcome and you should charge for your value, not your time. But uh, this conversation lands on many deaf ears. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I know we're wrapping up our conversation. We could probably keep it going for another couple hours, but I had the same problem with speaking engagements where when you go virtual, people want to pay you less. (laughs) And I'm like, you're getting the... In, in terms of what you're paying for is not how, you know, me coming out on the plane and and shaking your hand, right? I realize COVID has made that impossible. You're paying for 20 to 30 years experience in this field and my ability to deliver that message. That's what you're paying for is my intrinsic value as an expert in the field. Yes. And that price doesn't change. And you know? not my physical presence. <laughs> exactly. I'm not all that, you know, I'm, I'm not all that great to look at. So let's not worry about, you know, my physical presence. Let's worry about <laughs> the intrinsic value of the message I have to deliver to you. That's well, what you're that, paying that's for. That's one thing you and I will definitely disagree on. <laughs> <laughs> Celeste, is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? 
I mean, as I said, we could touch on tons of stuff, but I would, you know, I, I would just say that th this is the very last thing I'll say is that um, everyone is afraid to have conversations about touchy subjects. And yet every single time we survey this, every time we look into it in terms of research, we find that you're getting into an argument is extremely unlikely. Even over Thanksgiving dinner, which everyone seems to be afraid about, when you actually look at it, something like 4% of people actually do get into disagreements. So relax. It's okay. You're going to be all right. You can have the conversation. You'll survive. And frankly, cognitively speaking, uh, physiologically speaking, it's going to be good for you. Celeste, thank you so much. Thank you for your extraordinary work. And uh, I think you're legendary. I deeply appreciate it. And you're welcome back anytime. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Well, there she is, Celeste Headley. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Her new book is Speaking of Race, Why Everybody Needs to Talk About Racism and How to Do It. And uh, it couldn't be more timely. Check it out wherever you get legendary books. And if you enjoy this podcast, the greatest acknowledgement and gift that you could give us is to click share on your um, podcast app right now and share this conversation with uh, Celeste, with somebody that uh, you think in your life would deeply appreciate it from you. Hey, and it's a gift you can give for free. How many of those are there? All right. We would like to thank our good friends at Atrenet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T, building legendary, legendary, you know, if you're going to have a podcast, you got to learn how to talk. Legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Don't forget that your website is often the first thing that people experience when they check out your company. And you want it to be legendary, don't you? A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. Speaking of things you need to be legendary, the most powerful thing we can do in business in a lot of ways is to figure out how to scale ourselves. And that's where my friends at Bottleneck.online come in. You see, they are the leading dedicated distant assistant. Unlike virtual assistants, which are mostly technology, a dedicated distant assistant is a person who uses technology to help scale you. And they've been physically distancing before that was a thing. Check out bottleneck.online today. And my friends at Flow Kiosk are the leaders in iPad kiosks. They are how you engage digitally in a physical space be at the lobby of your building or a trade show or anywhere else you want to capture digital information from people in a physical space check out flowkiosk.com today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes and this oddcast is the sole property of the lockhead oddcast network we must warn you that all rights are uh, do remain perturbed and we are absolutely created in a studio that does contain nuts we are produced and edited by the goat himself jason DeFilippo. And he's got an incredible new newsletter he's just launched. You see, Jason has had many different careers, and he's had much success in those different careers. And so he's writing a new newsletter called The Pivoteer, where he teaches you intelligent ways to change careers. Check out The Pivoteer on Substack from Jason DeFilippo. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution, and uh, they do Lockhead.com. Show notes are by the handsome and talented GM Simon. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Please, I'm begging. The left lane is the fucking passing lane. Please get out of the passing lane. Listen to Joan Jett. Lyle Lovett was right. Remember, thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. Take two podcasts and tweet us in the morning. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. 
Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our uh, not-so-deep apologies go to Scott Omelonic, editor of Stink Magazine. I-, I mean, Inc. Magazine. Sorry, Scotty. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay healthy, take good care of each other, be legendary, and of course, till we hang out again, follow your different. <laughs> <laughs>